Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Sullivan Correctional Facility, just outside Fallsburg, New York State. It's a maximum security prison, home to some of America's most violent criminals. One of them is Arthur J. Shawcross. Shawcross has murdered 11 women and is serving a 250-year prison sentence. His case has raised serious questions about what causes extreme violence and what we understand about the nature of evil itself. We've come to meet him face to face to see if he would tell us what made him such a violent killer. People on the outside do not know what evil is. Do you know what evil is? Sure. Are you evil? Somewhat. Rochester, New York State, 30 miles from the Canadian border. It's a provincial city of a million people, set amongst the gorges and falls of the Genesee River. It's a middle-class town, but it also has a dark side. Lyle Avenue is a mile-long drag through one of the city's rundown neighborhoods, home to its seedy red light district. In March 1988, women began disappearing from the strip. Dorothy Blackburn was a 27-year-old prostitute and mother of three. Her body was found in a nearby riverbed. She'd been strangled to death. In July, Anne-Marie Stephan, a 27-year-old cocaine addict, also went missing. Her decomposed body was found on the banks of the Genesee River. Anne-Marie Stephan, do you remember meeting her? Uh, I met Anne-Marie Stephan's, I think, in front of the Finger Hut on Lake Avenue. Do you remember killing her? Yeah, possibly. 
I'm not going into details here. No, but how did you kill her? Probably strangulation. How do you know when they're dead? How? I don't know. Just do. More or less after they just relax. The body relax. Doesn't fight no more. It only takes about four minutes, probably. Sometimes less than that. To the outside world, Shawcross was just a regular guy. He lived here in this apartment on Alexander Street with his fourth wife, Rose. He worked nights at the local cheese factory and spent much of his free time fishing the banks of the Genesee River. But he was living a double life. He had a mistress, Clara, and was a regular visitor to Lyle Avenue. You've got a wife, you've got a mistress, and you're also seeing prostitutes quite regularly. And other people. I guess I could say I was enjoying myself. For almost one year, Shawcross killed no one. Then, in July 1989, police found the body of an elderly homeless woman, Dorothy Keeler. Dorothy was um, found down on uh, Seth Green Island on the Genesee River, and uh, she was bones. So we really didn't know at the time uh, why he killed her. She used to live in my house, in my apartment, for a while. Was she a friend? She was until she started stealing stuff out of the house. I asked her, why are you stealing? And she said, you need money. And I said, you have a bank account. I was paying her $4.25 an hour just to clean the apartment. So she was thieving from you? She was taking from me and my wife, Rose. Does that warrant killing her? Huh? Does that warrant killing her? Well, to me it did. But Shawcross didn't just kill Dorothy Keeler. He would later return to her dead corpse. And he came back and visited. He came back and visited, and he took her skull, her head, and threw it in the Genesee River. After you killed her, you went back later to see the body. Is that right? No, I went back to clean it up. She was found with her head removed. Did you? Is that That's right. How, how did that happen? Easy. Just pick it up and move it. What, you just pull the head off? Yeah, it was already off. Shawcross had now murdered three women, but his blaze of terror had only just begun. Rochester, New York State, the bodies of murdered women had begun appearing around the banks of the Genesee River. And throughout the autumn of 1989, the killings continued. On the 27th of October, Patricia Ives was found strangled to death behind the town's YMCA. And just four weeks later, the killings were to take an even more sinister turn. 
you know, the one that I, I remember the most and that's uh, stuck with me all these years is a young woman by the name of June Stott. And June uh, was not was not a prostitute, but she was a little slow. Uh, she had uh, acted much younger than her age. I think the thing that was most disturbing about it is that when her body was turned over, she was on her stomach. And they turned her over, he had come back and eviscerated her, cut her open right from the, the neck right down to the vagina. That was a fit of anger. You know, we spent a day down Turning Point Park, you know, feeding the ducks and walking around and we making out. And then she just flipped, you know, jumped up, says, I'm going to scream, scream, I'm going to tell the cops. Hey, I snapped her, snapped her neck. Stayed there all day until dark. Then uh, split her open from her neck to her groin. I didn't go all the way deep into the stomach area, just split her open. I don't know why. That was really disturbing because if you at that time we didn't know who we were looking for. Now you got a guy who's certainly we believe is the same guy, but his his activities increasing. His um, what he's doing at the scenes is becoming more severe all the time. The killing of June Stott was a turning point for the police. A pattern was now emerging. All of the murdered women were from vulnerable backgrounds. Most of them had been slowly strangled. The bodies were being dumped around the Genesee River and the killer appeared to be revisiting and mutilating them. The Rochester police now suspected they had a serial killer on their hands and they called in the FBI. The situation on the ground when I first arrived was a lot of stress, a massive police involvement in this thing. There's no doubt in their mind they had a serial killer working up there. And uh, so you, it's like walking into a pressure cooker you know, in a way. It's just intense. Police were chasing down hundreds of leads, and yet somehow the killer still seemed able to blend into the background. One of the big questions was, well, how's he getting these women? These prostitutes are scared to death, uh, and they're being killed. Yet, he seems to have no trouble getting them. The answer is, he's a regular client. They know him. Uh, they go with him. They have successful sex. He drives them back, drops them off, no problem. Uh, so they're not afraid to go with him. It's just some nights, it goes terribly wrong. We're trying to think, how can these prostitutes make these mistakes knowing that there is a perpetrator on the street that is that's snatching them right under police surveillance. I think the prostitutes and maybe to a degree some of the investigators are looking for like a real weird guy or somebody really really out of sync with what was going on when in fact it was just the opposite. You wanted to look for somebody who really was very much attuned to that scene and very comfortable in that environment. But despite a massive police clampdown the killing continued. Undercover police officers now poured into Lyle Avenue, posing as pimps and punters. But Shawcross wasn't phased by their presence. He continued to hang out on the street. I'm sitting on a stoop, and I got shiny shoes on, like a cop shoes, nice dress. And this guy sits down beside me, and he starts talking about the case, pointing out all the decoys. 
Yeah, I'm laughing at him. Why were you laughing at him? Well, I thought it was hilarious. You know, he didn't know who I was, but he had to open his mouth. He thought he was talking to somebody on the team. And he was actually talking to the killer? Yep. We subsequently found out that he did hang out at a Dunkin' Donuts. And, and the police would be in there themselves talking about the, the homicide investigation and what they were doing, not giving up intimate details, but how they were focused on, on looking at every vehicle that went down the road and maybe writing down plate numbers and running data. He was listening to the, that information and, and uh, even told them that, you know, that, that he had told his girlfriend to be careful out there because there was a bad guy out there that was picking up women and killing them. All this time, Shawcross kept up his normal routine, working at the cheese factory, going home to loyal wife Rose. But the girls kept going missing. On the 17th of December, 1989, June Cicero, one of the street's most notorious hookers, disappeared from Lyle Avenue. She was the madam of the streets. She was the meanest prostitute in the city of Rochester and they all respected June Cicero. Shawcross had picked her up in the Chevrolet celebrity that he borrowed from his mistress, Clara. How did June Cicero die? How did, how did you kill her? Strangled her. Mostly my left hand. Well, so you strangled them with just one hand? Right, right there. Pressure point. Shawcross drove the dead body of June Cicero out of town towards nearby Northampton Park. It was snowing real bad one night. And I went out Route 19, I think it was, and I crossed over on 31, headed back toward the city. And there was no cars coming, and I just opened the door and pushed her out. She went over the bridge, over to knock some snow down, went down in the water. And he just closed the door and kept going. The police were now to get a crucial break. While searching Northampton Park for the body of yet another missing woman, McCaffrey made a dramatic sighting. We were less than two minutes in, into the flight from Northampton Park back to Rochester when we flew over Salmon Creek. And underneath the bridge, I could see a body frozen in the ice. It was the body of June Cicero. And then McCaffrey spotted a suspicious looking car on the bridge itself. The passenger door was open and it appeared that he had been urinating out of the car. Uh, and, th and that's what we could see. And as the helicopter flew by, he closed the passenger door and slid across into the driver's seat and started to proceed uh, easterly on Route 31. It was what the police had been waiting for. FBI profilers had highlighted the killer's pattern of returning to the dead bodies, and McCaffrey decided to follow the Chevrolet. And as I was driving to Spenceport, the helicopter was flying above me. 
It didn't dawn on me what was going on. But the body of June Cicero was found yeah, very I, close to where you were on the bridge. Yeah, that was just down the road away. You know, it, I didn't register what was going on. I forgot she was there. It is my belief that Shawcross returned to the bridge to make sure that the body was far enough under the bridge so we couldn't observe it. As the body of June Cicero was recovered from under the ice, the driver of the suspicious car was taken into questioning by the police. 21 months into their investigation, police had now finally pulled in Arthur Shawcross. And when they ran his name through their system, they found an astonishing personal history, a trail of murder stretching back almost 20 years. Shawcross had grown up around Watertown, 100 miles east of Rochester. In May 1972, an eight-year-old girl, Karen Hill, was reported missing. Fearing she'd drowned, the police began searching the banks of the Black River. And uh, we went over the bank, and uh, I went on one side, Officer Passer went on the other side, and he says, here she is. I walked over under the bridge, and we saw this little body uh, buried in st with the stones on her, and her little feet sticking up. We knew she was dead because the whole upper torso was buried in rocks and um, she was dead, you know, she was cold. And, and those guys are tough policemen, you have to understand. And they, they were walking up from the embankment and just shaking their heads. I heard one of them say, he stuffed her mouth with dirt and mud to keep her quiet. And... A sniffer dog led the detectives from the body of Karen Hill to Clover Street and the home of Arthur Shawcross. Shawcross was then 27 years old and was living with his third wife, Penny. He'd had a troubled childhood and a history of petty criminality. He was arrested and brought in for questioning. Well, he was a lot different then. He was thin. He was just out of the army. He was in good shape. He looked like he had very strong arms, very strong hands. And when he was agitated, really agitated, he was scary. You wouldn't want to be in the room with him alone. He looked a little strange, to be honest with you. And uh, I did not get in the cell with him like I ordinarily would. I would always stay outside the cell. So we had the steel bars between us and talk to him there. Police now spent three days trying to get Shawcross to admit his guilt. And it appears that he made uh, some sort of a confession. It wasn't a, uh, a airtight confession. He said something to the effect either I could have done it or I might have done it. What did you do to young Karen Hill? I ain't saying. I told you I wouldn't talk about that. 
I wasn't talking about anything that happened in Watertown. Why not? Because I make that... I'm not talking about anybody in Watertown. You can either take it or leave it. But another child was missing too. Four months earlier, 10-year-old Jack Blake had also disappeared. Shawcross had often gone fishing with the young boy, and police suspected that he was responsible, but they had no hard evidence. And with only a vague confession linking him to the death of Karen Hill, police decided to offer Shawcross a deal. Tell them what he'd done to Jack Blake, and face a lesser charge for the murder of Karen Hill. So we had a conference in which uh, Mr. Shawcross explained to them what happened and what he did and how he killed the Blake boy. This was part of the plea bargain arrangement that he would, he would explain that case for them. Shawcross directed police to the body of the young boy, which they found by train tracks just out of town. He was naked and it seemed he'd been raped before being strangled to death. But as part of his plea bargain, Shawcross wasn't charged with the killing of Jack Blake and faced a reduced charge for the killing of Karen Hill. Mr. Shawcross pled guilty to manslaughter. He was given the maximum sentence, 25 years. Oh, the public was outraged. They, they were furious and they were uh, very upset about the plea bargain. I'm sure the public uh, wanted a murder conviction. People wanted justice, and no matter, the law had to be upheld, and nothing could be done more than what was done, but it was terribly frustrating for everybody that not more could have been done. Shawcross served less than 15 years of his sentence before being released on parole in April 1987. Just 15 months later, he had settled in Rochester, and his trail of murder had begun again. But had Shawcross been held responsible for murder in the second degree and received what would have been a well-deserved maximum sentence of 25 to life at the time, I know one thing as sure as I'm sitting here, he would not have committed these other homicides. Now, armed with the knowledge of the Watertown killings, the police in Rochester were convinced they had their man and they began to put the screws on Arthur Shawcross. There were several of the prostitutes that were still missing. And they played on that, the interviewers. And they said, look, Art, there's, there's, there's girls out there that are missing that, that, that we know you killed. They had a stack of photographs of uh, the victims, like a bunch of playing cards. And he took the stack and, like, a deck of cards dealt out the ones that he was responsible for. And then they went back and talked to him about each one, and he gave a confession to each and every one. Why did you confess to it? Why? I just got...
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. I'm tired of it after 14, 16 hours later. Tired of what? All the, what was coming at me, I just couldn't handle it. You are charged with a violation of Article Police now had their confession, and Shawcross was charged with the murder of 11 women. Darlene Tripping, June Stock, Anna Stephan, Dorothy Blackburn. As he was sent for trial, there was no doubt that he had committed the murders. But why had he done it? As medical experts began to examine him, serious questions emerged as to whether or not Arthur Shawcross might actually be insane. Arthur Shawcross had now been arrested and was awaiting trial for the murder of 11 women. There was no doubt he had killed them, but his defense team now set about exploring a fundamental question. What made Arthur Shawcross act so violently? Everybody knows there's something wrong with Arthur Shawcross. He's not a normal person. Everybody. You know that just from the beginning. So what is it? Could there be something neurologically wrong with him? Eminent neurologist Jonathan Pincus has examined the brains of numerous serial killers and believes that damage to certain areas of the brain is a major factor in causing extreme violence. The brain scan of Arthur Shawcross fitted this pattern. If you have a lesion on the MRI, you've got an abnormality in the EEG coming from exactly the same place, and behavior that's rather bizarre that comes from this part of the brain. I think it's likely that the abnormality of the brain has something to do with his behavior. So much that I think that had he not been neurologically abnormal, 
I think he probably would not have been a serial murderer. But brain damage alone is rarely decisive. Shawcross was also subjected to an in-depth examination by a senior Yale psychiatrist. What we discovered and then were able to verify was the fact that he was uh, horribly mistreated sexually as a child. In the course of the interviews, he relived some of that experience, which was out of his conscious awareness. Dr. Lewis led Shawcross through a series of interviews, some conducted under a form of hypnosis. What are you doing now? What's happening? What, what are you doing now? Art, why are you holding your penis? Art, what's happening? Mom. What's happening? What is Mommy doing? Mom's got me. Mom's got you now? What is she doing? What did your mother do? My mother gave me oral sex. She performed oral sex on me for several years. Mm -hmm. And when I was 14 years old, my dad intercourse, and I ran away. I put a sign, uh, note on my pillow in my bedroom. I'm going to Syracuse, and I turned around and went to Canada. I just didn't want to go home. Because you were being abused? Yes, sir, I was. He, very young, he ran away from home. He used to hide under the teacher's desk. He, he was an extremely bizarre and troubled child, very, very early on. So that there's a consistency to, um, to this history of, uh, of abuse. Dr. Lewis argued that the brain damage had caused him to suffer a phenomenon known as partial seizure. Just prior to the murder, there would be some event, uh, very often some disagreement or some threat to him where uh, the woman may have said, I'll tell your wife about this or something. And then he would see bright, bright, white light and then the next thing he'd know he would wake up and he would wake up often in his car and he would look beside him and there would be a body. He did not have conscious knowledge of what he was doing or conscious control over what he was doing. Defense experts argued that like many other serial killers Shawcross suffered a toxic combination of physical and mental damage. I would say it's three things interacting. It's brain damage, mental illness, and the experience of having been abused. Every one of those things is a, a factor in it. They interact so that if you didn't have one of them, the likelihood of violence would be tremendously reduced. The defense entered a plea of not guilty by means of insanity, 
In essence, they argued that Shawcross was not responsible for his actions. It was an argument that provoked derision from both prosecution and police alike. Few things are more tragic than the murder of a beautiful theory by a gang of brutal facts. And I think that's the answer there. It's a beautiful theory, but it was just laid low by the facts. He claimed his mother put a broom handle, inserted it into his anus, and shoved it up, was his description. That clearly would have resulted in major trauma. There was no evidence of any such trauma. During the trial, I received a call from his mother. She questioned, why is he saying these things? I never, why, why are they claiming these things? Your mom has obviously denied that anything like that happened. Everyone would. Can you picture what would happen to a person if she admitted she did shit like that to me? I mean, they say, they've said, you know, ask Arthur Shawcross, say, well, there was no sexual abuse when you were younger. How they know? I know, because I, I was there. I know what I had to go through. Well, they say they checked all the medical records. I didn't have medical records when my mother was abusing me. You think my mother took me to a doctor because she was giving me oral sex? That's bullshit. If he was lying and he hadn't been sexually abused, that would confound you. It would. It would indeed. Uh, it's almost in inconceivable that he was not sexually abused. Crucial to the defense case was the argument that Shawcross's mental seizures meant he had no knowledge of what he was doing. If you didn't know what you were doing at all, why do you make efforts to hide anything? Why do you deposit the bodies in a Genesee gorgery where they're less likely to be found? I think all those facts really speak to someone who knew exactly what he was doing. The prosecutor thinks that his upbringing was completely normal. This is just a man who was bad. He's evil. And he killed those women because he wanted to do it and he enjoyed doing it. That's not normal. I, no matter what the prosecutor feels is normal, that's not normal. Is somebody who kills a person mentally ill? Probably. Is somebody who kills 11 people here and has killed two kids before got issues? Absolutely. But that's not the claim, it's not the argument that they're not in some way disturbed. The issue is you don't qualify for an insanity defense. Shawcross knew what he was doing. And if you know it's wrong, then you're responsible for your acts. That's the way it works. During the trial, the defense also argued that Shawcross had been brutalized by his experiences as a soldier in Vietnam. What happened in Vietnam? Lots of things happened in Vietnam. Yeah, I went to Vietnam as a weapons specialist. And I had my own bunker in just outside of Kantum, Vietnam, Central Highlands. Shawcross claims he often ventured out into the jungle as a one-man unit hunting down enemy Viet Cong. And I see a, a woman in her 30s coming down this hill carrying two AKs on this side and two AKs on this side barrel down. So I reach over my shoulder like this, right behind my neck, and I pull out a brand new machete. When she backed out, I come up behind her and took her head right there. 
It took a couple of hits, but the head came off. She body dropped to the ground. She just bled out. He claims he then set about cooking the dead woman's body to extract information from her friend. I split the body in half. Opened up a pouch and I had some C4 plastic explosives. Lit a cigarette, just touched it, and it started lit up like a miniature sun. Mm. And I just laid the flesh up on top of that stick, right? And I bit into the into the flesh itself, you know, just staring at her eyes, and she urinated and defecated on herself. And she talked to me in broken English, so she told me everything I wanted to know. Mm. I go in, I reported in, saluted the colonel, and he gets up and he says, you one sick son of a bitch, but I love you. None of that uh, that we can tell is true. Uh, these Vietnam experiences are greatly inflated and exaggerated. Uh, it, there's no indication he ever went out and shot anyone, much less cannibalized or did any of the things that he claims to have done. But despite his vivid recollections of combat, Shawcross found few comrades in Vietnam. But I can't remember nobody's name in Vietnam, and that messes me up. War often forms very close relationships. You didn't form friendships with anyone out there? No. You don't remember anyone's name? No. How long were you there for? Thirteen months. What was your official position in Vietnam? I was a specialist, weapons specialist. We were able to actually track down in preparation his commanding officer, Sergeant, I think I even remember his name, Sergeant Weaver. Um, he was a supply clerk. He didn't go out on these secret missions. You know, I'm not a bullshitter. Anything I tell you is facts of life. If you don't believe it, that's your prerogative. You can do what you want. You know, everybody reads what they want, believes what they want, you know, and hears what they want. After hearing three weeks of evidence, the jury were unconvinced by the argument that Shawcross was insane. They found him guilty on all the counts of murder. He was sentenced to 250 years in jail. Shawcross has spent the last 18 years in a maximum security prison. He's confounded numerous attempts by psychologists to understand him, and like many other serial killers, his crimes have given him a macabre notoriety. I get letters from all over the world. I get a lot of college students, college professors, doctors, lawyers, psychiatrists, psychologists, yeah, all kinds of people from all walks of life. Do you see yourself as something of a celebrity here? Of course. In what yeah. way? Well, everybody knows what I'm here for. Do you enjoy the attention? Sometimes. Sometimes it gets to be a hassle. And from his prison cell, Shawcross continues to invent ever more imaginative justifications for his killing of the women in Rochester. When I picked those women up, I thought I had AIDS. Because one of the women who stopped in the car told me one of the women I took out has HIV positive. I didn't know which one of them were, so I went back and picked up all the ones I dated and 
two streets in Rochester, and I started killing And while I was doing it, I took the vagina of three and ate it. Why? I don't know. Probably to speed up the, the idea of uh, the AIDS disease. So you thought it might kill you quicker? Probably. It's just not a lot of people that I've ever spoken to have eaten human flesh. They read the raw steak. Read the steaks, you got the fat on the end of it. Yeah. Similar. But I mean, when you were hauled in by the police, did you make any mention of the HIV? No, sir, I did not. I suppose it's because some people might say, well, isn't that just an excuse to justify killing? You believe what you want to believe. I told you how I killed, why I killed. You don't want to believe it? That's up to you. One thing, however, remains a taboo subject, the killing of the two children in Watertown. You're prepared to talk about what happened in Vietnam and killing all these prostitutes. But I'm just wondering why you're prepared to talk about it and not Watertown. I don't want to talk about it. You say one more question, I leave. Certainly he knows how we all feel about murdering children. Uh, it's just obviously, you know, probably the most reprehensible thing anyone, anyone can do. And he, he understands that, but the problem is he can't justify it. He can't come up with a selling point or a way to mitigate that. So he's just, just not going to talk about it. But in 2001, someone was to enter Shawcross's life who would force him to confront his darkest demons, the daughter he never knew he had. In 2001, Arthur Shawcross received dramatic news. Whilst on leave from the army in the early 1960s, he had a brief romance with a woman in Hawaii. Forty years later, the child from that relationship, Maggie Deming, discovered who her father was and decided to make contact. My husband at first was like, you know, don't go there. You know, do you realize that he killed children? And I said, well, I can't just shut the door on this. You know, you know, this is a part of my life that I just can't close the door. What did you feel when you met him for the first time when you went to prison? <laughs> um, apprehensive, uh, nervous. I didn't, didn't know what to think, you know, what to say. Um, hi, Dad. <laughs> you know, um, he was very genteel. He was um, very soft-spoken. Um, very grandfatherly to my daughter. Uh, he, he joked around a lot. What about uh, your daughter, Maggie? She's cool. I seen her just before you showed up. Does, does your daughter, Maggie, know what you did? Does she know the details of what she you did? She has the information of everything. I told her things that you want to know, but you're not going to get. Like what? Ah, uh, you know what you're talking about. Things that happen in that other place. Watertown. Right. 
the children that he had killed, are the the, their ages are about the same age as my children are now. Uh, what he did to them, like I said, was a pretty graphic thing. And that's going to be between him and his maker. That's going to be between him and his maker. Maggie has seven children of her own, and she's been keen to make sure that they too have a relationship with their imprisoned grandfather. My older children know what he'd done. My younger children don't. And my father kind of like said to me, you know, it's best that the younger ones don't know. But sooner or later they're going to find out. Um, they don't really advertise the fact that they, their grandfather is a serial killer. Both Maggie and the grandchildren have become regular visitors to Shawcross in prison. Do you love Maggie? Very much. And do you love your grandchildren? Right. I write to them all the time. They send the, the grandchildren, the kids in, the, in school, they send me their uh, school tests and different things. What they're doing in school, send me pictures. And I draw their pictures. I do portraits. This is a horrible thought, but I mean, if someone were to, you know, rape and kill your grandchildren, what should happen to them? That's up to the law. But what do you think should happen to them? That's up to the law. But what would you think of them as a father, as a grandfather? I would be devastated. Right? Do you have any comprehension of the suffering that you've brought the families of the people that you killed. I don't have any remorse for some reason. But I find it strange that you can have, you clearly feel affection for your, your daughter and your I grandchildren. Know. That's strange. But you can't feel any empathy for all those people that, the families of all the people that you killed. Yeah. It's not there. Like I said, I'm one side and the other side. I don't know, something inside me is weird. These events happened so far back in time. Um, these, these things you really can't forget. These sort of things you can't really forgive on the part of those parents. You know, having to live through that. Um, I don't regret the fact that he's my father. I can't change it. And I don't see Arthur Shawcross from Watertown with my children in 2008 in Sullivan Correctional. Totally different people. Totally different. There's always a bad man in me. You never can get rid of it. He's behind a door somewhere. I'm trying to keep him there. I don't want to hurt nobody else. Really? Really. Yeah. Oh, just a final question, Arthur. I mean, what, what, why won't you talk about the, the two young Stop. children? Stop. It's over. Disconnect. Is it, not because, is it because you're ashamed of it? It's disconnect. It's, this is over. Okay. Uh, thank you very much for your time.
he put his arms around us and was just do exactly what I say. He put his arm around my mouth and picked me up and put me in his boot. I just froze. I couldn't talk, couldn't scream, couldn't do nothing. But the whole time I was just looking at Lisa and her face was like bright red. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line. Prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Bet MGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1 800 Gambler in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.